Um, second day of wonder. Happy birthday to Dr. Sean Elian, who's out there today, 21. Um, our first uh, speaker today is Professor of Theology at Canterbury Christchurch University, Professor Robert Beckford. Thank you. I'm just going to start by making sure I've got some water here. Mind you, in African traditional religion, this is libation and has a spiritual meaning, but um, for me it's just a case of thirst. Okay, um, thank you for inviting me to this um, fantastic festival. It's the first time that I've been here, and hopefully by the time I've finished, it won't be the last time that you invite me to come along. I was brought up just down the road from here in Coventry. Don't laugh, because there aren't a great deal of fantastic things happening or have come out of Coventry in the last uh, 150 years. But two things dominated my life when I was in Coventry. The first was going to church every Sunday for seven hours. Uh, I know it's, uh, we definitely weren't Anglicans. Uh, my parents were Pentecostal Christians, and they took their faith very seriously, which meant that we started off at 9 o'clock in the morning and then went on till 12 o'clock in the uh, afternoon. Then we took a short afternoon nap, and then we were back at church, sometimes 4 o'clock, sometimes 6 o'clock, and continuing until 9 o'clock at night. But what it meant was we got a great Christian education. We learned everything there was about the Bible, about Jesus. It was a very conservative tradition, though. So we read the Bible literally. And it meant that by the time we got to school on Monday, we were kind of traumatized, thinking that anything we said or did that was faulty, we would be struck down by God straight away. But that wasn't the worst part. Worst part of it was that we had a picture of Jesus on the wall with one of those uh, two-tone kind of images, which meant that the eyes watched you everywhere. So, you know, when you went to church and heard that God was watching you everywhere, and you went into the front room and saw the picture, you know, kind of reinforced this heavy sense of religion. The other thing that dominated our lives in the 1970s was racialized oppression. No matter where you went in the 1970s in the Midlands, whether it was a corner shop, whether it was a school, whether it was a football club, we were in the Premier League then, back in the day, Coventry City. It's a long story of decline since then, industrial decline, matched by the football decline. It was about race. You couldn't ignore issues around race. The kids I hung around with at school were immigrants from the Asian subcontinent, the Caribbean, Ireland, Italians. And we always, we always found ways in which, no matter what subject we were studying at school, issues of race and identity would come into the, the equation. The moment of crisis for me regarding these two poles, religion and racialized oppression, occurred in 1976. My best friend, who was the first punk rocker in the school, Richard Freeman, 1970s, just by the way, were a fantastic time in terms of music. Forget what you get now. 1970s were a fantastic time. My best friend, Richard Freeman, who was the first punk within the school, went on a march with the anti-Nazi league. And he came back to school on the Monday and he told me about everything that had taken place. He asked me the question, he said, why weren't you there? And I said, because I was at church. I said, I was worshipping God. And he said, well, what kind of God do you serve if when there's all this racism around, you're in church on Sunday rather than marching with me against the anti-Nazi league? And he said, he said in, in, a, in a moment of rare genius for Richard Freeman, he said, maybe God is a white racist. I thought, fantastic title for a book 30 years on when I'm a theologian or a talk when I'm in Just Gloucester. You know, I'll keep that one in the, uh, in the file, you know. But it made me think, well, you know, is there, is there enough evidence 
within the Judeo-Christian tradition to suggest that it is an inclusive tradition, a tradition which embraces everybody. And part of my academic career throughout uh, my life as a, a theologian has been wrestling with this question of identity. It, 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 whose side is God on? And in terms of the African-Caribbean experience, experience of being transported from Africa, slaves, being worked on Caribbean plantations, and being introduced to Christianity in a, from, a, from, a, from a dominant group to a subordinate group, is there enough within this tradition to liberate us? So I want to take you through in the next 15 minutes I've got some of the key categories for and against this question. You know, I wonder, is God a white racist? Well, what I'm trying to get at here fundamentally is about the complicity of Christian thought with racialized terror. Christianity and racism, do they work together? Is there enough resistance? And also, have we done enough as scholars, as theologians, as black theologians in particular, to wrestle these two categories apart? As I mentioned before, for me, the coalescence of these two forces was with this white Jesus. How did we make a first-century Jew a 20th century Aryan. There's something kind of Donald Trumpish about this, isn't there, really? You know, kind of going from one extreme to the other. You talk about being post-truth in politics. We've been kind of post-truth in theology for about 2,000 years. So this idea of religion and complicity with racialized terror is at the heart of the Christian tradition in terms of how we imagine who Jesus is. But there's also really strong traditions of resisting this. And this happens a lot in the Caribbean. You know, in Jamaica, Jamaicans like extreme ideas. You know, we like to take things out to the limit. Don't buy into this myth of Jamaicans being laid back and relaxed. We like kind of extreme politics. It's the work of a Jamaican-American artist, Rene Cox, who argues that in order to wrestle white supremacy away from the Christian tradition, you've got to reimagine the body of Jesus in a more erotic way, in one that gives you not only pleasure, not only one that, that challenges you, but one that causes you to embrace difference, the other. So she's very provocative in terms of reinscribing classic biblical images with African and African-American imagery, but also imagery that's deeply racialized, deeply sensualized, sexualized, and reclaiming the erotic from pornography and making it part of everyday experience. So pulling us away from this traditional image. So where do we start then? We start with the genesis of the problem. At what point does Christianity become racialized? Well, it happens not during the slavery, not on the slave plantations, but within Western intellectual thought. At the birth of the Enlightenment, the point at which the West begins to think about humanity being at the center of the universe and displacing God and the church, they also become complicit with Christianity becoming racialized. And it starts with the father of the Enlightenment, Immanuel Kant. Kant not only says that there's a racial hierarchy out there in his attempt to determine the nature of the different races, and he places, obviously, the, the European race above all other races. It gets kind of interesting, this race discourse, when you get to Britain. Because 300 years later, the English have a go at racial hierarchy in Britain. It's kind of funny, because John Bedeau travels the British Isles and says, look, I want to work out who's the best in Britain, who's the most intelligent, who's the, who's the most gifted. And he has a look around, goes to Wales looks at the Welsh, goes to Scotland, let's look at the Scots. He goes to Ireland, has a look. He goes, to, he goes around England. And he comes to the conclusion that on the top of the scale has to be, of course, the English. 
Well, it makes sense, doesn't it? They're just better than everybody else. And then he says, well, is it the Scots? Is it the Welsh? He goes for the, the, the Scots. They come second place. It's a bit like the, 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 the rugby. They come second. Well, no, it would be the Welsh, wouldn't it, really? With the Scots. But so, so, no. Then he says it's the Welsh. And then he says, the people who are closest to the Negroes are the Irish. That's the point where we get this notion of the Irish being the blacks of Europe and that fantastic line in the film, The Commitments. But the point here that I'm getting at is at the birth of the intellectual revolution, we have this commitment not only to racial hierarchy, but then Kant does a job on Jesus. He starts to reflect on the Christian tradition and wrestles Jesus away from Judaism, wrestles Jesus away from his Jewishness, from Israel, and declares that Jesus is ultimately whiter than white. Jesus becomes white. The gospel becomes white. And that's the point at which there is this coalescence between Christianity, whiteness, and white supremacy. But we can resist that within the church because even before Immanuel Kant, we have Maximus the Confessor. Maximus the Confessor, who's writing in the 7th century as a monk, realizes that there's this danger that Christianity will be absorbed by one group and used to dominate, to create colonial hierarchies, to oppress. So way before Immanuel Kant, the monks in the deserts recognize that it's vitally important to see Christianity as a religion of love, and you judge the value and the, the power of this religion by its ability to embrace the other, to be open to the other. And that's what Maximus the Confessor professes. So even when people talk about Immanuel Kant and the dangers of Kant, we can always turn to Maximus the Confessor and his work on love. My friend, the artist Faisal Abdu Allah, working in London, attempted to capture a sense of Maximus the Confessor's work and how Christianity should be an embracive religion, a religion that draws in the other and sees the self in the other. And he came up with this exhibition in the, early, in the late 90s called Revelation. What he wanted to do with this image was rework the Last Supper scene, but put in people from Housden in London, but people in different religious clothing representing different parts of the African diaspora to symbolize the fact that this religion has to be one of embrace and equality, and that equality has to go beyond ethnicity, beyond religion, and more importantly for him, beyond gender. But hey, look, he's from Harlesden. The Judas has to have a nine millimeter, doesn't it? You know what I mean? Why do you expect these kids from London? The whole idea then that you know, Maximus Confessor offers this, offers this alternative, but, but is it enough? Because there's other stuff we've got to deal with. We've got to deal with the racial terror that there is within Christianity. The fact that not only do we have this moment where Christianity becomes white, but the fact that that gets practiced in the Caribbean. This gets kind of personal for me. I started my career in broadcasting by telling my family history. If I knew this genealogy thing was going to be big business, I would have stuck with it. But unfortunately, you know, we just made one film at Channel 4 back in the uh, 1990s. And in that film, it's called Britain's Slave Pass, made by Trevor Phillips, I went on a journey to find the white family that enslaved my family in Jamaica. It's a nice gig doing the work that I do in liberation theology, because you always go to warm countries to do your work, you see. You know, where, where, where do you want to study the oppression? Johannesburg sounds good. <laughs> uh, what about Norway? Oh, no, there's nothing happening up there. Nothing up there. But I heard in Rio, <laughs> so this was uh, Jamaica. So they took me to Jamaica. 
While Janet has finally found her black forebears, Robert is still looking for his white ancestors. Rose Hall shows how the plantation owning Beckfords would have lived in the 18th century. reveals the kind of profits and um, money that was generated from the slave trade and the lifestyle that the people were able to live as a, as a result. The, the slave owners lived a fantastic lifestyle. Jamaica's Anglican Cathedral is the White Beckford's last resting place. The family enslaved thousands of Africans, Robert's ancestors among them. Robert's Christian faith tells him that he should try to reconcile himself with the slave owners. But he finds that a Jamaican church still gives slave masters pride of place. really angry I wanted to spit on the grave because these people represent the oppression of my people they're the ones who worked my ancestors to death raped many of the women and then had the audacity to you know get buried in the front of a church and it kind of reveals the church's complicity with the terror of slavery by having them buried there at the front it somehow it, it, it kind of cleans up you know purifies the wickedness that actually took place yeah, so we've got to deal with the fact that there's com this complicity. Is there, is there enough within the Judeo-Christian tradition to offer us an alternative? Oh, the Church of England are still waiting for a proper recompense, by the way, in terms of um, uh, compensation for their role within the slave trade. The church's role within this, is, is, is there enough for us to, to unravel that? Can we find a powerful counter? Or is it just too too much that took place. Does this experience just mean that we, we just can't accept Christianity as being a redemptive religion? One way in which theologians in the African diaspora think through slavery as a religious experience is by using the world of work of Rudolf Ott. Ott, uses, Ott tries to describe the nature of the holy, and one of the categories that he uses is mysterium tremendum, this idea that when you encounter the numinous, the holy, this powerful presence, it has an impact upon you. And he says that impact is, is terror and dread, but also fascination. So this weird mixture. And when religious studies, they argue that this, the coming of the West on Africa was a religious experience. It wasn't just about breaking flesh and bone. It wasn't just about gland grab. It was also about the destruction of cosmologies and worldview. And when you do that kind of a thing to a people, destroy their worldview and their cosmology, it becomes mysterium tremendum. It becomes a religious experience. So the coming of the West on Africa as a religious experience, this racial terror, requires a religious response. And luckily, uh, who else could save the world except the Jamaicans? 
Because obviously, the Jamaicans realized this. Rastafari realized this, that in order to unravel the connection between faith and inequality, faith and injustice, you need just not a religious experience, you need a cultural experience. And that's why Rastafari was more than just an embrace of a belief system, categories of religion. It was also about a way of life, a shamanistic experience to exorcise the existence and the presence and the residue of the slave past. So, yeah, we had the racial terror, but the Jamaicans' folk has shown us a way out of it. Surely, the universities then must understand this relationship in our halls of, our halls of excellence where our scholars live, where they work, where they pen articles. Surely, they must be aware of this relationship. After all, we have this 500-year sojourn with racial terror within Britain. Surely we must, have, must make sense of it, particularly in terms of my discipline. Well, sadly, that's not the case. Um, when you get to my age, you know, and you've been teaching for 15 years, you, you realize that you only need to teach for about 10 minutes and give the kids some exercise to do. Get them out of the room. You go and have a coffee, read the paper, come back in. So you always have these little tricks up your sleeve, you know, so you can catch up with your pals in the, in the staff room. And one of the, one of the tricks that I have is, I say, I don't know, it's terrible, isn't it? They're paying nine grand a year for this. Um, one of the tricks that I use, I, I say to my students, say, go to the library and find every book written by English theologians in the last 100 years on race. They go away, and if it's a first-year group, it'll take them 45 minutes, so I know I can make it to the tuck shop and back in time. If it's a second-year group, 25 minutes, quick coffee, back in time. Third year's five-minute toilet break, back in there, because they're on it. Well, man, they come back and they say, we found one and a half books. I say, okay, um, uh, that's, that's not bad, it's not bad. Uh, Go now to the library and find out how many books there are written by English Christian theologians on animal theology, on being nice to animals. And they go away and they come back and they're really happy. They say, 76! And I say to them, doesn't that kind of suggest something strange going on? That we've got this tradition here of these scholars, these brilliant minds, and they write more about you know, animals than this long history. Now, don't get me wrong. I hope that my pet, Degus make it into heaven. I really do hope the goldfish that we have, you know, upstairs make it. I even hope the quails my kids rear in the garden end up in glory land if there is a, a glory land out there. But we've got to ask critical questions about what kind of discipline do we have in England in Christian theology if we're writing more about being nice to animals than dealing with this racialized history. Well, luckily... Uh, the Jamaicans didn't save us on this one, but the African-Americans have a few things to say about how we should then go about rethinking theology. The father of my discipline, James Cone, started writing after the, the assassination of Martin Luther King and developed a whole new discipline called black liberation theology. And black liberation theology attempts to do the opposite. Rather than stay silent on issues of race, class, gender in Christian theology, it foregrounds them. A few years ago, when I was making a film for... BBC Two on Barack Obama's faith. I was fortunate to interview the patriarch of black theology, James Cohn, and ask him a few questions about the meaning of black liberation theology. Black liberation theology believes that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel for the poor, for the weak, and for the purpose of their liberation from bondage. 
Some people have argued that black liberation theology, by focusing on blackness, is racist. Black people who have been defined as beasts and as lower than human in the modern world, the only way you can fight against that is to love that which others try to despise in you. Now, just because we fight against white supremacy and do not accept white supremacy's judgment on what blackness means for us, just because we reject that does not mean that we hate white people. We're not trying to oppress anybody. We're just trying to get liberated. Yeah, Cohn put it so succinctly, the whole idea that you need, therefore, a counter to this tradition. So while the English Academy stays silent, the African American Academy has been incredibly dynamic and vocal, articulating a theology that disrupts this idea that God favors one group over another and attempts by focusing on blackness to open up a category of thought for thinking about God and God's engagement with all, all of God's children on equal terms. But for some of us, that's still not enough. We still don't feel that we've been able to wrestle whiteness, white power, hierarchy, and gender power, gender issues, male, fellow center. We're not quite sure. So I tend to occupy a middle ground, a pragmatic tradition, one that is articulated by Harvard professor, Professor Cornell West, a pragmatic, pragmatic, prophetic Christianity, a pragmatic one because we reserve the right to be wrong. We may not have got it right. It may not work out, but one that is prophetic in the sense of the 8th century biblical prophets who speak truth to power, who struggle for justice in the best traditions of justice in the North Atlantic that emerged out of the, the Christian tradition and Christian socialist tradition within Britain, the civil rights tradition within North America, a prophetic tradition that says we will always wrestle for justice even though we reserve the right to recognize that we, we may actually be wrong about this. Thank you.